from PRX. It's so familiar, we can all hum the theme from memory. Hello, I'm Tom Hanks, and I have seen it over 200 times. It's a movie that changed movies. I mean, there was nothing like it before, and there really has been very little since. And conjured the future. Open the garage door, please, Alexa. Open the garage door, please, Alexa. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Fifty years later, we're still trying to sort out what it means. We don't know. We still don't know. We're still looking for answers. I don't even know what adjective (laughs) to use. Today on Studio 360's American Icons, it's the ultimate trip. The first in our two-part exploration of 2001, A Space Odyssey. Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. It was the first Wednesday of April 1968, and Stanley Kubrick was nervous. He was one of America's hottest and most respected directors, but it had been more than four years since his last film. Well, I became interested in the idea that the universe uh, was full of intelligent civilizations. The new one, 2001 A Space Odyssey, was finally premiering in New York at the grand old Lowe's Capitol Theater just off Times Square. In black tie and a scruffy beard, Kubrick spoke to a TV reporter under the marquee point is that there are so many stars in the universe that the likelihood of life evolving around them, there would be hundreds of millions of worlds in the universe. Way behind schedule and way over budget, the movie hadn't been screened for test audiences. Nobody had seen the film. So that's what he was faced with, a press preview for a couple of thousand people on a screen as big as they made them in those days. The gigantic Cinerama Theater in New York was packed with people including young Joseph Gelmes. I was the film critic for Newsday in 1968. And it wasn't just critics and journalists. Movie stars like Paul Newman and Henry Fonda were there, along with Kubrick's wife, Christiane, and Arthur C. Clarke, the science fiction author who'd helped him create the film. And it was Stanley and Christiane and Arthur sitting in the front row there. Michael Benson wrote the recent book, Space Odyssey. Christiane looked around and she said to herself, a lot of Alta Cockers here. And Alta Cockers is in German and Yiddish. It means the same thing. And I'm not going to say on air what it means, but it basically means old farts, okay? You know? And, um, you know, they were the older entitled representatives of, of the media and the establishment. It starts in the past. You were watching the scene in which the ape men come upon a monolith, a black looks like a black tabletop upended. And so it was hard to uh, get a handle at that point. Gilmas looked around the theater and realized he wasn't the only one. There were catcalls, there were boos, there was, there was uh, uh, laughter, the real wrong kind of laughter. And that, that was a shock. I, I'd never seen anything like that. And he saw tears on Clark's face of humiliation. 
And meanwhile, Kubrick was uh, roaming the theater and monitoring the squirm factor in the audience. And he also had somebody at the door counting walkouts, which eventually numbered 241. (laughs) And so it was just not going well at all. And uh, at the intermission, there was a flood of people leaving. And I know when it ran out in Hollywood that Rock Hudson was quoted as walking down the aisle and saying, well, someone please tell me what the hell is going on. This was still the era of old Hollywood, with the unconventional just barely beginning to show itself. Movies like Thoroughly Modern Millie and Camelot had just won Academy Awards, and Oliver would sweep the next round. Up until 1968, the majority of movies were basically like stage plays that you just happened to put a camera in front of. Yakety yak, explain, explain. Piers Bazzoni is the author of The Making of Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Here, Stanley presented these staggering images and said, well, here's some weird sounds. Here's a story told as purely as we can get away with using cinema. After the premiere, Joe Gelmas, the Newsday critic, banged out a review on his typewriter. The headline is, Space Odyssey Fails Most Gloriously. (laughs) Filmmaker Stanley Kubrick's brilliance and egotism have goaded him into trying to surpass the originality, audacity, and prophecies of his Dr. Strangelove. His immense talent and vaulting conceit have produced in 2001 a space odyssey, one of the most bizarre movies ever made. It moves at a slow, smug pace. It is patronizingly pedantic in some of its earnest history lessons. And while it dazzles the eye, it offends the ear with one of the worst soundtracks made. It is a mistake. Instead of suspense, there is surprise and confusion, and for many, resentment. Almost all the other reviews were even tougher. The New York Times said it was, quote, somewhere between hypnotic and immensely boring. The Village Voice called it a thoroughly uninteresting failure. Pauline Kael, who was just becoming the American critic, panned it as monumentally unimaginative and trash masquerading as art. After the screening, Stanley and Christiane had a reception at the Plaza Hotel in a big suite, you know. And it was supposed to be, of course, a victory lap, let's all party, this is a great film. But it was like people looked like they'd seen an accident in there, you know. And Christiane said to me, it was just a, a room full of men and drinks and tension with schadenfreude and a sense of disaster. After everybody left, they're left alone in this big suite, you know, with the stink of cigarettes and this sense of doom and defeat. Stanley was just pacing the room saying, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? They hated it. This is horrible. What am I going to do? You know, and he was losing his voice. So she described how they lay down at four in the morning or something and he couldn't talk. And she said he was near tears. It was such a horrible experience. After a string of major successes, Stanley Kubrick, not yet 40, figured he'd just spent four years making a very expensive movie nobody understood or liked or would go see. A monumental flop. But then dawn broke. First thing Christian hears on waking up the next morning, the clock radio woke them up. And there was a report about this long line of people stretching down Broadway to see Stanley Kubrick's new film. So suddenly there was a crack of light. And the audience just kept coming. Especially the younger audience. 
I was 13 when 2001 opened. I saw it at the fancy new Cinerama Theater in Omaha, Nebraska, on this curved screen 110 feet wide, supposedly the biggest in the country. And watching it, it was the first time I'd ever been so entranced and excited by something I didn't entirely get. The first time having a real experience of art. I recognized, even at the time, it was a movie that was profound and deep. It was a great work of art. And I was nine. I didn't have the words to express what I felt. I felt the movie mirrored exactly where I was developmentally. You know, I was a lone teenager hurtling through adolescence, trying not to hear the dissonant voices. It's the single motion picture that is responsible for changing my life. And I have seen it over 200 times. A half century later, audiences are still coming and still unsure what they've seen. I'm still processing it. It definitely lived up to the hype. I feel a bit anxious. It's like awesome and terrible all at once. I've been much younger when I saw it for the first time and I I fell in love and I'm still in love. I, I still say it's better than the movies that are out now with green screens. To me, it really struck me as like very current still of like more relevant as time has gone on. So how did 2001 A Space Odyssey go from opening night bomb to becoming an American icon? Why is this movie still with us 50 years later? To try to answer that question, we'll go back to where it all began. That's coming up on Studio 360. Studio 360. Testing one, two, three, four. Tape November 27, side A. This is Stanley Kubrick, early in the production of 2001, in an interview for The New Yorker. Born July 26, 1928, New York City. My father is a doctor. Now, if you have a picture of Kubrick in your mind, it's probably the older, bearded recluse of the Shining and Eyes Wide Shut era. But the young Kubrick was this clean-shaven hipster who played drums in a jazz combo and chess in Greenwich Village. He's from the Bronx, was not very popular. He was a camera geek. Michael Benson. And um, he wasn't very good in school. The only courses that I got good marks in were science courses. I think I got about an 87 in physics. And then he got a gig freelancing for Look Magazine before he was out of high school even. And Look Magazine at the time was the big number two competitor to Life Magazine. Exactly. It was a very big deal. And he got photos in there in his teens. I think he was 16, 17 already. But then apart from that, he was frequenting all those great movie theaters that have shut down in Manhattan and seeing everything, European films, everything. He was, he was apart from being a camera geek, he was a film freak. I, I, I didn't really know what I didn't know, and I thought, well, Christ, uh, I certainly couldn't make one worse than the films that I kept seeing every week. So he clearly had a vision and was a hustler. He was a hardcore hustler, that guy. By 1964, he was a young, hotshot director of smart, edgy Hollywood films. Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. He'd just released his seventh feature. The bomb, Dimitri. The great Cold War satire, Dr. Strangelove. The hydrogen bomb. The space race was in full swing, and for his next picture, Kubrick wanted to make the first, quote, really good science fiction film. 
sci-fi was still very much a, a B genre. Not much cinematic ambition, hardly any real science. He also wanted people to think seriously about the preciousness of Earth and our place in the universe. I became keenly interested and started reading up on all the, you know, literature, of which there is a tremendous a lot. Boy, am I getting fucked up on that. A tremendous a lot. <laughs> Kubrick needed somebody to help translate his vague notions into a story. Enter Arthur C. Clarke. At age 46, Clarke, a Brit, was the author of 20 sci-fi books and nearly as many non-fiction science books. The first contact with intelligent extraterrestrials will be the greatest adventure in the future of man. It may not happen for centuries, but one day it will come. Clark had this kind of treasure chest of really intriguing ideas, and Kubrick had the drive and the ability to realize them. They first met over lunch one day in April 1964 at Trader Vic's in Midtown Manhattan and wound up talking for eight hours straight. So there was a serious uh, bromance thing going on there almost immediately. He, he is, uh, I think, the most poetic uh, science fiction writer. Arthur Clark was staying at the Chelsea Hotel where he hung out with Warhol and Allen Ginsberg and William S. Burroughs. Over the next weeks, he and Kubrick spent long days wandering around the city, batting ideas back and forth. Here is Clark reading from the journal he kept at the time. May 28, 1964. Suggested to Stanley that they might be machines who regard organic life as a hideous disease. Stanley thinks this is cute. They visited the futuristic Guggenheim Museum, not even five years old, and art galleries where minimalist geometric sculptures were in vogue, and watched a lot of cheesy sci-fi movies. July 11th, Stanley calls and says you'll never see another movie I recommend. One night, Kubrick invited Clark over to his new penthouse apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. It's a white brick building, how 60s. I took a cab there with the writer Bruce Handy, who'd spent many hours in the Kubrick archives for a Vanity Fair article about 2001. Hello? Yeah, I had the radio crew downstairs. You can go ahead. We have arrived at the 14th floor where Stanley Kubrick and his family live. Kubrick's former apartment isn't huge, although it's got a serious terrace. Yeah, we'll show you the terrace thing. Oh, wow. It's a nice terrace. Yeah, it's a really nice terrace. terrace. And I'm, yeah. I, I, I basically... I'm having apartment envy, just as a New Yorker <laughs> The New Yorker profile of Kubrick at the time described an apartment with three rambunctious daughters and crammed with hi-fi and shortwave radio gear. His wife, Christiane, told the writer, Stanley would be happy with eight tape recorders and one pair of pants. Fifty-odd years later, the apartment seems not all that different. I'm actually a, I'm a very big Arthur C. Clarke fan. Uh, you, can look, you can look over there, you can see all, really? all the books, yeah. So it's a up here. So after they meet at Trader Vic's and spend eight hours deciding, okay, we can do this, we're a team, uh, uh, Kubrick living here in this very apartment, I feel him here. Uh, invited Arthur C. Clarke over uh, to talk more and to show him his telescope. And uh, Yeah, they were celebrating. They had made an agreement where they would kind of write a novel and slash script together, and they went out to celebrate. And um, they were on the terrace, and I guess it was a, a beautiful night, and it was a night that, uh, yeah, had clear skies. 
About an hour after sunset, a crescent moon hung just above the horizon. To the south, the lights of the midtown high-rises were blinking on. It was a warm spring evening, and they were excited. You know, they're going to do this fantastic film together. And within a few minutes of this, um, a bright, bright light rose to the east <laughs> and, and rose in the sky and, and allegedly just hung there for a while. And they were very excited and freaked out. And, and they went out on the, on the patio of the top of this building. So, and, and we're looking southwest, so this is exactly where they saw it, and then it went up. They did have a telescope, and they, they observed the UFO with it, which, which remained a point of light. But they, they took it, I mean, really? Your friend Arthur Clark thought that it might have been a, a, a signal from the extraterrestrials? Well, that's another thing I didn't mention, is he said this was by far the brightest UFO he'd ever seen in his life, and he'd seen many. And, and he had the thought, they don't want us to make this movie. That UFO in 1964 turned out to be an experimental NASA satellite. So, maybe a good omen. The day that Kubrick and Clark had first met happened to be the opening day of the 1964 New York World's Fair. Welcome to a journey into the future. It was the last of the great American World's Fairs. This earnest celebration of the early 60s zeitgeist, total giddy confidence in technology in the future. That summer, the two of them went for a visit. On the moon, there is no air to breathe, no rain to fall, no sound that can be heard. Yet here is man exploring building his first bridgehead in his span of space. So there was a Cinerama film called To the Moon and Beyond, and it was projected vertically, straight upwards, onto a dome. The Moon Dome, they called it. Yeah, it was the Moon Dome. In fact, it had craters on the outside, and inside you could see this film. And a young Doug Trumbull uh, worked on it. Doug Trumbull was in L.A., where he'd grown up, the son of an illustrator mother and a father who'd helped create effects for The Wizard of Oz before getting into aerospace. I feel like I was a really lucky guy to stumble into this genetic code of engineering and art. He was barely in his 20s when he was working at Graphic Films. When Kubrick and Clark saw this movie, they hired Graphic Films to start doing pre-production design for 2001, which at that time was called Journey Beyond the Stars. And I, I called my boss. How do I get in touch with this Kubrick guy? Help me a little bit here. He says, okay. Kubrick's phone number is penciled on the lower left-hand corner of the bulletin board at the office. I went back to the office, wrote down the phone number, and cold called Stanley Kubrick. I don't know where I got the chutzpah to do that kind of That's thing. That's a lot of chutzpah. I called him, and I'm sure Stanley Kubrick said, who's this Trumbull guy calling me? But once Kubrick realized Trumbull had done the visual effects he'd seen at the World's Fair? I got a call back, and he said, well, I've got plane tickets for you and your wife to come to London and work with me on the movie. Here in this London suburb, space scientists, industrial designers and conceptual artists from all over the world are gathering at the MGM studios. It was now 1965. With a $5 million budget, the equivalent of $40 million today, Kubrick set up shop at MGM's huge facility in Borehamwood, outside London. This is 2001 historian Piers Bazzoni. 
Kubrick presented MGM with an outline of, of how the movie would go, based very much on um, Arthur C. Clarke's early draft of the novel. Here's the bare-bones treatment. Open on an African plain three million years ago with apes still evolving into humans. Sleek black monolith appears, and the primates learn to kill each other with weapons. Cut to the year 2001. An identical black monolith is discovered on the moon, and a spaceship embarks on the long flight to Jupiter to examine yet another black monolith. Hal, the ship's supercomputer, starts going haywire, and after that, mm, something, something, awesome spectacle, they figure it out, the end. And they got to the point where an astronaut headed off to have this mysterious encounter, but they kind of stopped their draft at the point where you'd find out what would happen next, uh, possibly because they didn't know themselves. You know, we have a big budget epic film and they didn't have a completed script and they, you know, he kept on changing his mind about scenes. For the very first scene, Kubrick eventually settled on a highly unconventional cold open in space with the sun slowly rising over the moon and Earth. What you have to start with is the WOM. Tom Hanks was 13 years old when he first saw 2001 in Oakland and had something of a religious experience. There's the beginning of 2001 Space Odyssey. Magnificent. Man, it's as though you've rehearsed that. <laughs> it's imprinted in my brain. For the next 20 minutes, we hear no dialogue at all, just ape men grunting. And I got mad uh, because there was some girls, and they were, like, laughing at the apes. <laughs> they were laughing like that. And I said, shh, I shushed them because it was so important to me. Then the black monolith suddenly appears and the apes go nuts. That unforgettable monolith was almost a chunk of clear plastic. Kubrick got the idea that it should be a transparent block and that maybe inside that block, images of future ape progress could be projected. So they did this. It took, uh, I think, a month to cool and it's, it's mold. And they delivered it to the studio and Stanley looked at it and said, just looks like a transparent block of glass. Kill it. Then Clark, maybe thinking of the avant-garde sculptures they'd seen in New York, suggested a black slab. So they built one, and it looked good, and it looked abstract. The simpler something is sometimes, the more magisterial it becomes. And from that object, the apes apparently learned to use a bone as a weapon. That conflict over the waterhole between two different packs of primitive human beings needed no explanation. And then that heaving of the, the first weapon that the man had ever utilized uh, in order to gain power flies up into the sky. 
You see Dan Richter as Moonwatcher in his man ape suit, smashing bones. And a rib bone went spinning into the air. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. You know, and Kubrick said, no, no, it's good. Go with it. Go with it. So he believes that that idea of the match cut came from that fortuitous, what he thought was a mistake, but Kubrick liked it. Cut from flying prehistoric bone to spacecraft floating above Earth. And in a single instant, Kubrick had encapsulated the entire history of human understanding in one fell swoop. That, when that happened, I, I swear to God, my, uh, my head exploded. Next, we see a Pan Am space shuttle gracefully docking with a giant space station. Welcome to voice print identification. Would you please state your destination, your nationality, and your full name? Moon, American, Floyd, Haywood R. Rewatching the movie today, so many things Kubrick imagined more than half a century ago seem so prescient. Like those brand names all over the space station, now that private companies like Virgin Galactic and SpaceX are taking over space travel. Or when the mission boss, Dr. Floyd, calls his daughter from space on a picture phone, just like Skype or FaceTime. Hello. Hello. How are you, Squirt? Are you coming to my party tomorrow? I'm sorry, sweetheart, but I can't. Why not? Well, you know, Daddy's traveling. Daddy's traveling to the moon to check out the mysterious black monolith and flying over the lunar surface in a moon bus, which in the 60s looked like nothing anybody had ever seen before in a movie, let alone real life. This was world-building of an unprecedented kind. All the spacecraft in 2001, inside and out, looked so real. Thanks to advisors from NASA and industry, the huge detailed models they made, and Doug Trumbull's creativity. When it lands on the moon and it's got these rocket engines underneath, it's going to kick up a lot of dust and dirt. So I would put all this crud on the bottom of the moon bus and leave some burnt exhaust fumes to make it look like that had happened. Well, it's interesting, but so much of of that then became standard in Blade Runner, which you worked on later. Oh, you see the crappiness and the degradation, the, the spacecraft, which then we saw versions of in Star Wars. It was as though the conventions were all being invented by you guys in 1967. Yeah, I think that's true. As Kubrick was filming his make-believe astronauts on his make-believe moon, Clark was visiting NASA to check out how the real thing, the Apollo program, was coming along. Yes, it's hard to realize that in a few years, some American astronaut will be looking through this window out onto the lunar surface. And what we are doing in the movie, 2001, A Space Odyssey, is showing some of the things that will develop in the world of the future as a result of our present first steps into space. Then a delegation from NASA visited the 2001 set. And although they couldn't take photographs, they would write, my gosh, we've seen amazing things. We've seen these spaceship sets that look absolutely real. And they're so real that even the actors inside these sets are sort of convinced that they're astronauts. Such as the Discovery's 38-foot diameter centrifuge, which was supposedly generating gravity. The actors playing the two main astronauts were Gary Lockwood and Keir Dulles. There's a scene all in one shot 
where you see almost the whole of the interior of the centrifuge. You see Gary Lockwood sitting seemingly upside down at the top of the wheel. I enter in the center of the wheel from the hub and climb down the ladder, get some food, and then seemingly walk up the side of the wheel and slide in upside down next to Gary. Amazing shot. I didn't walk upside down. They revolved Gary down to me. And all I had to do was walk in place. And again, there were no computer-generated special effects in this movie. Everything you see in 2001 was physical one way or the other. Kubrick obeyed the laws of physics in this movie. No space movie had ever done that meaning that there was no gravity in space. And so you had the circular um, Ferris wheel-like space right. station. And you responded to that as a, as a kid? I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen because no one had ever bothered doing that before. Even Star Trek on TV, just they just walked around like they were in the Navy for crying out loud. <laughs> yes. you know, it's like they drank from water and you know, cups and stuff like that. The main middle section of 2001 takes place aboard the spacecraft Discovery on their long voyage to Jupiter. The two astronauts jog around the centrifuge, play chess with a computer, and use a tablet device that's a dead ringer for an iPad. What they hardly do at all? Bowman and Poole do not talk to one another. They don't greet each other at breakfast. I had been in tune to space movies in which people said, hey, so yeah, I took a look at those fusion grids back in Sector 5. Looks like we're going to have to have some carbons. Go, oh, yeah, I want to get to that. Hey, listen, you know, they didn't speak to one another. This, this was astounding. Um, and even the, uh, the, the cryptic conversations between the Russians and, uh, and Dr. Floyd on the space station. But this epidemic could quite easily spread to our base. Uh, we should be given all the facts, Dr. Floyd. Yes, I, I know. He repeats saying... As I've said before. As I said, I'm not at liberty to discuss it. I'm not at liberty to discuss it. Well, that, that is just, holy smokes. That is that just raised the hair on the back of my neck much huh. better huh. Than, than a bad guy saying to uh, James Bond, I've grown tired of this game, Mr. Bond. Uh, <laughs> yes. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. It's a, a whole <laughs> different sort of, a sort of grown-up communication of things that were important. There's so little dialogue in this film. And a lot of the dialogue that had been scripted for Cure Delight got cut. And I'll show off because there's only one long speech I ever had that was never used. Mission Control, this is X-Ray Della 1. At 19020 onboard fault prediction center and our 9000 computer showed Alpha Echo 35 unit as possible failure within 48 hours. Request check your in-ship system simulator. Also confirm you approval our plan to go EVA and replace Alpha Echo 35 unit prior to failure. Mission Control, this is X-Ray Delta 1. Transmission concluded. And there you have it. <laughs> 52 years later. You 52 know, the, years later. Uh, that's extraordinary. And, and what, what What's interesting is, of course, that was during the Gemini and Apollo space program, when we thought of astronauts not as these cool scientific characters, but more as cowboys. You were doing a version of astronaut that astronauts became later in a certain Yeah, I think there's one of the predictions that Stanley got right. Our psychological profiles were less human than some of the machines that we were surrounded with, and I think that was intentional. I enjoy working with people. I have a stimulating relationship with Dr. Poole and Dr. Bowman. My mission responsibilities range over the entire operation of the ship, so I am constantly occupied. I am putting myself to the fullest possible use 
which is all I think that any conscious entity can ever hope to do. In 1968, we'd seen robots in movies, mechanical men, and a talking computer on Star Trek. But we didn't really yet know about artificial intelligence, hadn't seen omnipresent, disembodied AI. The single piece of the future that Kubrick most remarkably depicted in 2001 was the HAL 9000. Just a moment. Just a moment. I've just picked up a fault in the AE-35 unit. It's going to go 100% failure within 72 hours. But Hal is not telling the truth. Well, I don't think there is any question about it. It can only be attributable to human error. The concept for Hal had been shaped by many research trips to IBM for expert advice. Piers Bazzoni. And they said, you know, this computer is not so much uh, something that the astronauts would sit around. It's more like something that they would live inside because this thing would be very big. And Stanley basically flew into a rage when he got this communication because he already knew from NASA that computers were getting smaller and smaller, not bigger and bigger. But gradually he calmed down and realized, actually, no, let's go for this large room-sized computer because we can have the astronaut go inside it and that'll look just great. He would, he would joke with people, you know, the second most important part of this movie is it's got to be realistic. And people would say, come on, Stanley, what do you mean? What's, what's the most important thing? And his eyes would light up and he'd beam a huge grin and say, well, the most important thing, of course, is it's got to be interesting. Hal's storyline gets a lot more interesting as he sends Gary Lockwood's astronauts spinning off into deep space and then refuses to let Dave back on the ship. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. Michael Benson. He informs IBM, you know, our computer has become more experimental. We're going to take IBM's name off of it because, you know, certain things are going to happen. And, so on. and that's why it became Hal instead of IBM. Uh, It's a very moving and very memorable scene when Dave figures out how to shut down Hal. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? Dave, I really think I'm entitled to an answer to that question. I know everything hasn't been quite right with me. Clark had put forward the proposition that an intelligent AI would be capable of feeling pain and experiencing anxiety, especially if it's going to be shut down. Stop, Dave. My mind is going. I can feel it. I'm afraid. Clark had visited Bell Labs, and a um, computer scientist there taught a computer how to sing, and, and the song was Daisy Bell. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer to... Hal is referencing a moment in the history of computing when he, when he sings that song. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer to... I'm half crazy. All for the love of you. 
Bach's use of music in 2001 is memorable and effective, but also weird. First, there are these long, long stretches of the film with little or no scoring at all. Second, for a cutting-edge movie set in the future, so much of the music was so old-fashioned, especially for mod 1968. MGM put a lot of pressure on him to hire a composer because, you know, they had put so much money into the production and it was just unheard of that a major Cinerama spectacular would have anything other than original music. You know, so he did hire Alexander North, who had done the score for uh, Spartacus. North kind of naively got excited in hearing there was only 20 minutes of dialogue and thought, oh, great, I've got this blank canvas on which to compose music. So he scored the first half of the film and was waiting to see the second half as it was cut. This was North's opening theme. Kubrick uh, was unreachable, and North, finally he got a message. Oh, it's okay. We don't need any more music. The rest of the film will have breathing effects. That's what he heard. But he was never told that it was all tossed out. And when he went to the premiere in New York in April 68, he thought he was going to hear his music. There was not one note of it. Kubrick preferred the temp tracks he'd been using from a stack of classical records in the editing room. And he got into the habit of playing the Strauss waltz. And he looked at how the scene was playing and he turned to his special effects people and his editors around him and he said, gee, guys, am I crazy, but could this work? The reason Johann Strauss's Blue Danube waltz worked for the scenes in space, according to Doug Trumbull, was because of how they shot those scenes. With very long exposures, so the stars wouldn't look blurry. If the stars moved too fast, you would get two stars because your retina is starting to see the first frame and then it also sees the second frame because of the shutter in the projector. That caused everything in the movie to be slowed down. And that's how it came to look so balletic. Who would imagine that you would take a blue Daniel waltz and use that for spaceships? Who would do that? For the opening shot of the movie, Kubrick added another piece of late 19th century music. Richard Strauss's also Sprach Zarathustra. He took me into the cutting room one day, and he played me Zarathustra with that shot. And he said, Doug, am I out of my mind? Is this like way over the top or what? I thought, you know, this guy has got a lot of nerve. If Stanley Kubrick had lacked nerve, 2001 would have been a very different movie. For one thing, there would have been a lot more talking. The original plan was to open with real scientists lecturing about the possibility of extraterrestrials. Clark also wrote reams of explanatory voiceover for the whole film, which was only cut in the final edit. They even tried several ways of showing the aliens, but decided yet again, less was more. Defy convention which meant it took some getting used to for people. After the disastrous premiere, Kubrick cut 19 minutes and added a couple of title cards. Remember Joe Gelmas, the critic who panned the film? He had second thoughts. The hysterical overkill of the reviews made me think that something was wrong. 
So we went to see the movie again. And did you immediately say, oh, I, I misjudged this, I didn't see it? I didn't have to. My, my heart started, truly started beating so hard, and I felt this effusion of, of gratitude that I was in the presence of something really special. And he published a remarkable second review, essentially retracting his first one. About 100 years ago, Moby Dick was eloquently damned and devastatingly dismissed by one of Britain's most influential and erudite literary critics. He ridiculed its self-indulgent lyricism and poetic mysticism. When a film of such extraordinary originality as Stanley Kubrick's A Space Odyssey comes along, it upsets the members of the critical establishment because it exists outside their framework of apprehending and describing movies. They are threatened. After seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey a second time, I'm convinced it is a masterwork. Rain into a paper cup They slither wildly As they slip away Across the universe Coming up, 2001 catches on with the cool kids. John Lennon said, uh, 2001, I see it every week. They understood it. That's next on Studio 360's American Icon. Studio 360. Millions of years ago, before the human race existed, an adventure began. An adventure that ultimately leads man to confront his own destiny in an odyssey of exploration. 2001 A Space Odyssey opened on April 3rd, 1968. And you remember what happened April 4th, right? April 4th was the day Martin Luther King got shot. Film critic Carrie Rickey was an L.A. teenager then. If you grew up in the 60s, there were so many political assassinations. So I was kind of weirded out about the assassination. And I was even more weirded out because I was going to this movie by myself. I was an awkward 15-year-old with braces and, you know, I was a metal mouth and I wore glasses. So I was very isolated somewhat. Of course, the Cinerama Dome was huge and the image was crystalline and the sound was sharp and it was cranked up to 11. If I had anyone to talk to then, you know, I would have scratched my head and said, what was that? But shortly after I saw 2001, my English teacher asked us to do an essay on Robert Browning's A Man's Reach Should Exceed His Grasp. And I wrote about 2001 and how I couldn't grasp it, but I'm still reaching. (laughs) Others of her generation tried grasping it by seeing it high. It was in Chicago. And you could uh, kind of notice that there was this special smell in the theater when you walked into it. 
UMass communications professor Jaris Hansen has studied how 2001 altered people's perceptions. She was 17 in 1968. We knew what was in the air. That was grass. There's no doubt about that. And as the film started, I do remember just feeling like I was almost sinking into the chair and just experiencing not only what was on film and this wonderful curved screen, but also just sitting there with a group of people who were just so communally into the whole thing, responding, smoking, having a great time. Ground control to Major Tom. After David Bowie saw the film, he responded at age 22 with his first big hit, Space Oddity. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. You know, the reason the younger generation got it... Michael Benson. ...and the avant-garde got it and the counterculture got it is you had all these radical experiments in theater and music and, you know, acid rock. You know, every, it was all... Like, the culture was exploding and it was all people below 30, basically. You weren't supposed to trust people above 30. And, you know, John Lennon said, uh, 2001, I see it every week, you know. The entire rock counterculture went to see it, endorsed it, and so on. They understood it. And, and unlike so much that of the culture of the late 60s, this was so rigorous, not sloppy, not easy writer, not a psychedelic poster that somebody made at 3 o'clock in the morning and printed it. You know, I mean, it's, it's so gorgeously, elegantly virtuosic, yet it embodies all that 60s stuff. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, you see it today and it's not dated. Even the psychedelic Stargate sequence near the end holds up. Doug Trumbull created the abstract patterns of light into which Dave Bowman and the viewer are zooming. Were you aware as you were doing it, as you guys were making it, that this would appeal to the people who were high in, in the no, audience? No, 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 had no idea that that might happen. Yeah. It was a happy accident. But the way Kubrick shot the scene with Cure Delay was quite deliberate. I, I was on top of a platform, and there was a camera... Uh, doing an immense close-up. Sometimes it was just my eyeball. Other times, just a big close-up of my face reacting to something that wasn't there. He also played a very mysterioso piece of music, which really helped me get in the mood. Another serendipitous find by Kubrick, a new piece by the composer George Ligeti. Any ordinary filmmaker would, would assume oh, you got to have a shot in the Stargate with the pod flying through it. And he said, no, I don't want to intrude on the audience's ability to kind of become Care Delay. He wanted the audience to have a trip of their own. I, I, I was blown away. I was surprised. I, visually, there was no way that I could have imagined from my own subjective experience of making the film that that's what it was all going to look like. Had you tried psychedelic drugs? No, I hadn't, but coincidentally enough, sometime during the shooting schedule, Gary Lockwood gave me my first joint. As 2001 became a counterculture phenomenon... 
MGM's head of marketing came up with a new tagline. One of the reviews had said the the groovy light show sequence at the end of the movie is like the ultimate trip. And it was a derogatory statement, you know, like you take LSD and you see colors like that. So what he did was he just put in quotes, the ultimate trip. And then he put a big photograph of Kier DeLay with a look on his face. And suddenly everybody wanted to smoke a joint and then go see 2001 A Space Odyssey and argue what it was about. The movie became an improbable hit. Even the soundtrack album charted. 2001 was still in theaters the next year, 1969, during the summer of Woodstock and of the Apollo astronauts stepping on the moon. Its journey was just beginning. Next time on part two of American Icons, 2001 A Space Odyssey, it's Hal's world. We just live in it. What you don't want is Alexa to say to you at some point, just a moment. Just a moment. (laughs) I've detected a fault in the deep fryer that is currently making your french fries for dinner. You don't want to have Alexa do that. I can't do that, Tom. That would be bad news. Plus, one of the greatest living American artists has been keeping a secret about 2001 all these years. (gasps) Unbelievable. Right? My jaw is on the floor. (laughs) And we'll try to figure out once and for all what happens at the end. The final scenes feel like a little bit holy to me. That's all coming on the next installment next time on Studio 360. Studio 360's American Icon series is supported by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. This episode was produced by Derek John. We had production assistance from Tommy Bazarian, Eliza Lambert, Lane Gerbig, and Sam Kim. Our sound engineer is Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman, and our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. I'm Kurt Anderson. See you next time. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, it's Hal's world. We just live in it. I am putting myself to the fullest possible use, which is all I think that any conscious entity can ever hope to do. Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey predicted so much of today. Do you talk to Alexa? No, because 2001, all I think about is Hal. Part two of our look at an American icon next time on Studio 360.